Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Strength to Strength. It's good to have you on here this morning, and we are looking forward to to Darwin Martin sharing a topic on why don't we love God? Um, I think we're going to have a short prayer here, and then I will let him introduce himself and take it from here, I guess. Yeah, you've been on here before, Darwin, but it's been a little bit, so you can do a short intro. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this new morning. Thank you for your blessings. Thank you for this opportunity to connect in this way. And I pray that you would um, use this time to uh, stir up our minds and our hearts to love for you. And I pray for Darwin as he shares that you would help him to speak in a way that we can understand and clearly and, and get, get the message. Father, I pray that your, that your kingdom will come and your will will be done in our lives, and that we can glorify you. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so yeah, we'll be having a, a Darwin will be sharing, and then we'll have a time for a question and answer or question and response, as the case may be, um, at the end, uh, around 7 o'clock-ish, or whenever you you wrap up your, your talk, Darwin. So go ahead, Darwin. Well, good morning. I'm glad to be with you this morning again. And uh, my name is Darvin Martin, and we, my wife and our children, we have eight children. We live in Massachusetts and are part of the Disciples Fellowship Church. So the discussion that I'd like to start out with this morning is about the love of God. And there are two commands that that are central to being a follower of Jesus. And even long before Christ, this was central even in the Old Covenant. Now, we'll just read a, a quotation here from the book of Luke. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And your neighbor as yourself. And like I said, Jesus affirmed these as being the, the top two most important commandments. And I'm going to be focusing on the first one, that of loving the Lord our God. The question that I have different times is, is, you know, why don't we love God? What is it about God or what is it about us that that people seem to struggle with this so much. And why is it that I struggle with this most basic commandment to love the Lord God? We all know how to love things. We, we love our families. We love our work. We love recreation. We love beauty. We love pleasure. And I, and I recognize that there's different levels of love and there's different expressions of love. And we recognize that you can do love and you can also feel love. But for all the practice that we have in loving people and things, there seem to be vast numbers of people, and I'm speaking about Christians, who, who don't really love God. And that cripples their, their lives because love for God is really the starting point of, of um, walking with God. 
I'm going to suggest uh, this morning that many times that people, many times people don't love God because they perceive God in some way as being unlovable. The case I'm going to make is that the truth about God is very attractive to us. But people develop a perspective of God that is unattractive, and and that's why many times they don't love God. And so just to be clear, I don't believe this is the only reason people don't love God, but I do think it's a, a very basic reason and something that is a big problem in the world today. And so maybe it'd be, maybe it'd be helpful for staging this conversation just to, to ask ourselves some questions, a quick, do a quick analysis here. How do we perceive God? Do we perceive God as being vindictive or do we see God as being merciful? Is God a taskmaster or is God a father? Do you think of him as being stingy or is he abundantly generous? Is God obnoxious or is he friendly? Is God a killjoy or is he pleasurable? Is he indifferent to you or is he attentive? Does he seem distant, far away, or is he very near? Does God seem big and dangerous or do you feel safe around God? Is he austere or is he kind? Is God your adversary or is God your ally? And when I ask these questions, I'm not trying to ask for an intellectual or a theological response. No, rather, these questions are intended to bring out our heart response. Like, what is our impression of God? And to this, many Christians could, would be able to identify with at least some of these negative perspectives that have, that I listed. And maybe it'd be helpful to think about it this way. Why do we, why are we sometimes ungrateful or discontent? Does that not reveal that we consider God to be stingy? Because certainly if we would think that he is generous, we'd be much more slow to complain. Or why do we struggle with anxiety and fear? Is it not because we have a perception of God that he's far away or he's uninterested in our difficulties? Or why is it that we beat ourselves up so badly when we fall? Is it not because we consider God to be austere rather than merciful and kind and coaching? A.W. Tozer has said it well. That our idea of God correspond as nearly as possible to the true being of God is of immense importance to us. Compared with our actual thoughts about him, our creedal statements are of little consequence. Our real idea of God may lie buried under the rubbish of religious notions and may require an intelligent and vigorous search before it is finally unearthed and exposed for what it is. Only after an ordeal of painful self-probing are we likely to discover what we actually believe about God. And I believe the solution to this 
is that we need to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts. And this is what I'm going to spend the majority of our time looking at. In the book of 1 Peter, uh, chapter 3, verse 15, there's this this uh, somewhat popular verse where he says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And I'm focusing on the first statement, the first uh, instruction there, to sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. What does that mean? To sanctify something is to set it apart as holy. To sanctify the Lord God in our hearts, I believe, is to recognize that we might be holding a perverted view of God. And we want that to be purified. We want our view of God to be purified. It's to stop believing lies about God and, and, and begin embracing the truth about God. It's to vindicate God from the blame that we may have placed upon him. Jesus gave his disciples what we call the Lord's Prayer as a model prayer. And in the opening sentence, we pray this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now, to ask our Father's name to be hallowed, that's, that's a request, that's a petition. But if God answers that prayer, what are we expecting to, rec- how would we recognize it? What are you expecting to see when God answers the prayer for his name to be hallowed? God is already holy. By asking his name to be hallowed, we're certainly not asking that his character be changed in any way that, or that he becomes holy. Rather, we're acknowledging that indeed he is holy, and we want his name, all his reputation in us and in the world, to be renowned as holy. Early church father Cyprian said it this way. We say, hallowed be your name. It is not that we wish for God to be hallowed by our prayers. Rather, We beseech God to be hallowed in us. We ask and entreat that we who were sanctified in baptism may continue in that which we have begun to be. Why is this necessary and why is it so important to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts? Well, I believe it's because of our our enemy and, and how the devil works. The the Apostle Paul said this to the Corinthians, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Ever since the Garden of Eden, one of the primary methods that Satan has used to lead people into rebellion against God has been simply to desecrate God in the minds of people. He makes God look bad to people. And if Satan can convince you that God is evil in nature or that God is being evil to you, you will become his pawn. This is precisely what happened to Eve. Uh, Let me just read this this, uh, verse here from Genesis 3. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan's dialogue with Eve planted doubts in her mind about God's character. The lie was that God is not good and trustworthy. God is not being truthful. God is not looking out for Eve and and Adam. In fact, God's withholding good things from them. and They're missing out. And once she accepted the lie, the disobedience was simply the next natural step. Clearly, a corrupted view of God will contaminate everything downstream. Our thoughts, our feelings, our will, our words, and our actions. Now, I'd like to look at several examples from Scripture. And I would like to start with the Israelites, uh, the Israelites in the wilderness. But before they were in the wilderness, uh, I want to remind us that before they left Egypt, they were slaves in Egypt. And not just for five years either, This they were slaves for, for multiple generations. By the time they left Egypt, slavery was all that they knew. And so during the Exodus and, and into the wilderness, we find this these people were an extremely cantankerous people. They were extremely ungrateful and, and unwilling to, to follow. For example, while they were still leaving Egypt, before they even crossed the Red Sea, they're saying this to Moses. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. You recognize in that statement that there's a lot of fear and there's a lot of mistrust. But it continued even after crossing the Red Sea. Only, I believe this was about six weeks later. They're saying, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And again, a little bit later, the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Now, these are only a few examples of the of the angry and contemptuous words that the people were were uh, spewing at Moses. And this kind of talk is not what you would expect from someone who loves God. No, this is the language of an oppressed slave toward his slave driver. In the minds of the children of Israel, they were still slaves. And they would blame all their woes on Moses and his God. God was not sanctified in their hearts. In fact, years later, God gave this testimony to the psalmist. For 40 years, I was treated with contempt by that generation. And I said, They always go astray in their heart, and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. You notice that that God 
identified the problem. He said, the, the problem is they do not know my ways. You know, they think, they think still in terms of, of slavery. And they, they think that I'm their taskmaster. They don't know my ways. They keep wishing for themselves to have died. And yet, you know, what was God doing? God was delivering them from slavery. He was opening up the Red Sea for them. He was uh, miraculously providing uh, sweet water for them when they found bitter water. He was providing manna for them. He provided manna for them on a daily basis. So it was very regular and they could begin to, um, they could completely begin to expect that. Uh, he would, he was providing water for them out of a rock and on uh, two occasions. But this pattern of lashing out at God continued even after they entered the promised land. They continually forgot God and turned toward idolatry and lawlessness. They rejected God as being their leader and wanted to have a king instead. And so God sent them prophets along the way to try to teach them his ways. And one of those prophets was the prophet Isaiah. And in Isaiah 55, he says this, God, God speaking through Isaiah. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So God is saying the same thing that he said to the psalmist. They do not know my ways. The problem here is that the people's thoughts and and their ways are off track. God ought to be sanctified in their heart by learning the ways and the thoughts of God. What's unfortunate is that even today people quote verse 9 here. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And they conceive of God as being, you know, so much greater, incomprehensible, um, you know, just this distant sovereign, perhaps, that whose thoughts we cannot know. But that's completely the opposite to what God is communicating. God is saying in this whole passage, he's saying, I am near to you. I'm close to you. Come, you know, adjust your thoughts so that they would be after my thoughts. You know, adjust your ways so that they would be after my ways. God is lamenting the fact that we don't know his ways. Well, this problem continued even while Christ the Messiah came to earth. Have you ever marveled at why the Jews missed their Messiah? Jesus said, made some statements like this, for example. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Another time he said, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, 
You do know him and have seen him. And Jesus made other statements similar to this. And the apostles also picked up on this and and made various statements about this. For example, in Hebrews, we have this verse. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. But in spite of the fact that Jesus is this exact imprint of his nature, the Jews, by and large, missed him. They did not recognize God. Their perspective of God was wrong. And when Jesus came along, they did not recognize him because, because they did not, they did not know God. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And, and if we have learned of the father, we would come to Jesus. Also, again, even in, in, uh, people of Jesus' time 2000 years ago, uh, they had an unsanctified view of God in their heart, and this kept them from recognizing the love of God and recognizing the presence of the Messiah. I love this quote from E. Stanley Jones. I believe some of you brothers are familiar with this. We now know that God is like Jesus. He is Christ-like. And if he is, he is a good God. If the heart at the back of the universe is like this gentle heart that broke upon the cross, he can have my heart without qualification and without reservation. The next example that I would like to look at from the scriptures is the example of Job. And you remember what A.W. Tozer said, how sometimes we need to really dig deep in our own hearts to find the question, to answer the question of what our perspective of God is. Well, one thing that, that helps to bring that to light is when we face trials. Trials have an uncanny way of really exposing the, what we really think about God and far, far beneath the, the theological and intellectual, um, you know, professions that we make. <clears throat> so again, when, when things are going well, you know, it may be relatively easy to have a sanctified view of God, but, but when our world turns upside down as it did for Job, then, then we see the true colors. And if you're not familiar with the story of Job, you know, feel free to read that for yourself. But by the end of the very first chapter, Job had already lost all his children and much of his property. And this was Job's response. Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved off the hair of his head. And he fell to the ground and worshipped, saying, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave And the Lord has taken away. As it seemed good to the Lord, so also it came to pass. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all these things that happened, Job did not sin against the Lord or charge God with folly. Now, of course, Job didn't 
understand the entire plot. And, and he was actually, you know, from our perspective, from reading the record that we have given, we recognize that he was technically wrong about the Lord taking his things away. It was actually Satan who caused the destruction. However, even though he thought God was responsible, yet he did not charge God with wrong. Instead, Job blessed the Lord, figuring that God had the right to do as he pleased. And this is such a noble expression of faith. How could he respond with such faith? I believe that Job was able to respond with faith in this, in this trial because he had this, he was practiced in this from years before. <clears throat> he was practiced in, in thinking of God in a sanctified way. <clears throat> How might we know this? Well, earlier in the chapter, we have this story of, or we have this related to us about how his sons would have an occasional banquet. And I'm going to just read these verses. It's verse four and five. It says his sons would visit one another and prepare a banquet every day and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of their drinking were ended, Job sent and purified them. And he rose early in the morning and offered sacrifices for them according to their number, as well as one calf for the sins of their souls. For Job said, listen to this, lest my sons consider evil things in their mind against God. Therefore, Job did this continually. You know, what would be so of such great importance to Job that, that when, whenever, whenever this periodic banquet is complete, that he would go about purifying his children through sacrifices and so on. What would be of such high importance to him? Nothing less than this concern, that his sons do not consider evil things in their mind against God. And so Job was used to thinking in terms of, of like warding off the evil perspectives of God and thinking of God in a sanctified way. Job was used to that, and when his trial came, he was ready to bless the name of God because he recognized the greatness and the glory of God. The next example that I would like to look at is a parable that Jesus taught, and this is often referred to as the parable of the talents. And before I read these verses, I'll just give you the basic plot. So so a man was preparing for a journey. And he called his servants together and entrusted to them his property. And he proportioned out his money based on the servant's individual abilities. To one servant, he gave five talents. To another servant, he gave two. To another servant, he gave one talent. And then he left for his trip. Now, the first two servants, they started trading with their money and they made out well. But the servant who only received one talent, he went and buried it in the ground. Now, after a long time, the master returned from his journey and called his servants together to settle accounts with them. And the first two servants, they had both been able to double their investments, and they brought the money to their master, who was well pleased. The master blessed them and rewarded them generously. But the last servant uncovered his talent from from the ground, 
and he presented it back to his master. And here's how the, here's how that conversation goes. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. And you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the 10 talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, Even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, there have been many times in my life when I would read this parable or I would hear it being taught. And I would have this kind of deep fear that surely I'm going to be destined to be that last servant. Surely I won't be able to perform well enough to receive the blessing. But what specifically was the problem with that man? You know, was, was he just disorganized and he couldn't get his priorities straight to, to find the time to invest his Lord's money? Or did he lack the education that he needed to know how to make investments and, and make, make good on them? Or did he have a physical or a mental handicap? No, actually, actually not, because he had a very good master. One who, it's recorded in the text, one who specifically gave out responsibility based on the, in his individual ability, based on individual abilities. The servant was not incapable of using what was entrusted to him. I believe that the root problem for this servant was his perception of his master. In his eyes, His master was evil, cruel, and dangerous. And this desecrated image of his master made him petrified with a dysfunctional fear. The solution for that man and the solution for you and me is to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts. Is God that hard and austere man reaping where he doesn't sow? No, by no means. When we come to realize that under the lordship of Jesus Christ, we have the best master in the world. This will motivate us to serve and it will give us courage to endure. The last example that I want to give us here is the story about a father and his two sons taken from the book of Luke, chapter 15. (coughs) There was a man who had two sons. While their father was still living, the younger son rudely asked for his inheritance a while. And then he moved to a distant country and squandered everything on a riotous lifestyle. I, I believe 
that the reason this younger son wanted to leave home was that he felt like his father deprived him of a good life while he was at home. He felt like he was missing out. He felt like his father didn't have his best interest in mind. But finally, when when the son was threadbare and hungry, he began to view his father differently. He realized that back at his father's estate, even the servants were were well were fed well and treated with dignity. So he resolved to return and offer himself as a servant. But even though he was gaining a more sanctified view of his father, he still never expected the welcome party that he was about to receive. His father was so excited to see his son come back, he spontaneously threw a party. The father's heart was much bigger and more generous and loving and forgiving than the son had ever thought in his entire life. This whole celebration was unscheduled. And meanwhile, the older son was out working in the field. But in returning to the house, he overheard the music and dancing and found out what was going on. And on hearing that his rebel brother was being received with such pomp, his heart became resentful and he refused to enter the house. Finally, the father left the festivity and came out to plead with him to come in. But the older son's response was, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yeah, you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Isn't it strange? Isn't it just strikingly amazing that the older son apparently also felt that his father was depriving him of a good life? Maybe, just maybe he was not as different from his prodigal brother as he thought. Listen to this father's reply. Son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. I believe that this story graphically illustrates something that we should learn about ourselves. (coughs) Excuse me. With an unsanctified view of God, people will tend toward either lawlessness on one hand or asceticism on the other hand. Like the younger son, who felt like his father was depriving him of the joys of life, he goes and rejects his father's heart by by living a licentious and undisciplined life. He left home probably feeling like he can't please his father anyway. There's no use trying while the older son, who also felt his father didn't care for him, he rejected his father's love by becoming dutiful, self-righteous, and distant. Possibly thinking that he could earn his father's 
grudging favor if he performed well enough. The, the, the dream, the, the inspiration, the, the take home question for us is how would the story play out if both sons would realize the goodness of their father? I believe that the reason this matters so much to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts. I believe the reason this matters so much is that we become like our perception of God. We become, we're naturally changed into the, the God that we perceive. And when we perceive and recognize and receive the love of God, this has a, this has a converting effect on our heart and it changes us. It softens us. It makes us compassionate. But if God is austere, if he, if God is dangerous, if he's reaping where he doesn't sow, this brings out a lot of fear and, and brings up a, a lot of, um, controlling tendencies within us. When we sanctify the Lord God in our hearts, it opens our hearts to love him. How can you love someone that you not only fear, but you mistrust? How can you love God? (coughs) How can you love God? If your impression of God is that he's big and dangerous and ready to strike you any moment. No, instead, with ideas like this, we will become desperately insecure. But when we sanctify the Lord God in our hearts, it opens our hearts to love him. As John said, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Amen. God bless. Well, thank you. Thank you, Darvin. That's really, um, really thoughtful and thought-provoking things you shared. Uh, so, so one thing I, w- I was pondering as you're talking um, you know, God, God is our father and you see God using family metaphors a lot in scripture in describing himself and also his people. And I, I've, I've often wondered how, so, so one of Satan's tactics in, in the society we live in, live in is, is to mess up that, that, um, 
picture of family for people. Hmm. And so, so when you talk about God being our father and some people just for some people, that's not a good thing. You know, like their experience with father is not good and, and they see him as harsh and controlling or else neglectful or, you know, so this is a little bit, maybe not quite a little bit off the, off the track of what you're talking about, but just thinking about how, how, if, if we're those of us who are fathers, how that, how that affects our, um, our children's or other people's perception of God, who God is. Like, what about our perception of God as fathers influenced by our experience with earthly fathers? I don't know if you have any, any thoughts or, or comments on that, Darwin, as you've thought about this, but. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a very good point. <clears throat> I, you know, I haven't spent much time or I haven't, I haven't actually touched on it here this morning so much about like how, how do we do this? You know, I'm, I was more or less laying out, um, what we need to do in, in sanctifying God in our hearts. How, how to actually do this is um is something that you know I, I believe it takes time it takes um it takes a lot of maybe working through our perceptions and I know that I know that one one thing that I have in my um uh, in my notes you know, one thing that is something that I've um, tried to lay out my thoughts about is is this idea of God as a father and how how that changes my perception of God. You know, and and as a father myself, it it continues to change. You know, from when I first became a father until now, there have been many times along that way that I would recognize that that I need to take instruction from my heavenly father for how to be a father to my children. And yeah. and like there are very many, you know, instructive ways, uh, instructive things like that. How to how to fix that for, um, you know, how to get beyond maybe the failures that we might see in our own earthly fathers. I think that what we, I think the answer to that is that we need to find God as a father and relate and relate to God as a, as a child, as a son. Behold what manner of love the father's given that we, that we might be called the sons of God, mm-hmm. you know? And so we need to like begin to relate and, and learn from that relationship. And in, in some respects, I think this is very similar to what we had going on with the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. They had a very bad experience of, you know, anybody that was a master to them was cruel and hard. And how are they going to change their perception of, of God as being, yes, a master, but not cruel and hard? Mm-hmm. You know, like they need to like open their minds to that, 
possibility and, and allow for that to change in their own hearts, you know. So, so it's a good question. Yeah, I don't really have a succinct answer, but, but, uh, God help us to, to like learn from Him. You know, we have the person of Jesus to look to, to give us the express image of the Father and, and what tenderness and what compassion we see in Him and in His responses. Mm-hmm. He's, and Jesus said, you know, even an evil father knows how to give good gifts. You know, how much more your heavenly father knows how to give good gifts to his children. So I, I believe that Jesus, you know, the Holy Spirit, uh, the whole influence of God upon our lives is to coach us into, into that Christ likeness. Yeah. Well, thank you, Darvin. That's good. Um, Someone else has some have some questions or comments. If you if you have a question to share, um, just it's great if you can turn your camera on when you do that. And yeah, go ahead. Who else? Thank you, brother. Um, for for sharing that was um, a real challenge to me um, probably one of the biggest challenges you know that I that I had in this conversation is of thinking about um, how I'm reflecting my heavenly father to those who ask the hope that is within me and the importance that I understand accurately who God is mm. Um, as A.W. Tezger quote there, that idea of um, the importance of actually knowing deeply what we think of God. You know, we can have all these cradle statements and whatever, but at the end of the day, when the, when the pressure's on, when the pressure's on, how he says, only like the, the quote that you gave, only after an ordeal of painful self probing are we likely to discover what we actually believe about God right and so thank you for tackling this topic and and obviously it's something that you've been really thinking a lot about um and I would you mind talking a little bit about why you think this is I mean you make great defense but maybe what what has what has kind of taken you in this direction to really kind of zero in, you know, you have your YouTube channel where you're putting up short teachings um, that I think are, you know, really foundational to this idea. But you know, I'm just curious, what is what has led you to this? <clears throat> yeah, well, I see the need so badly in my own life. <clears throat> there is, um, I guess, I guess maybe people struggle with different things and. And one of the things that I struggle with or have struggled with from time to time has been depression. And, and it was, it was, uh, it was during and out of a, a hard, dark tunnel of depression that this, that this, uh, 
realization dawned upon me. And it really, it really has been transforming my life. So I have, so yeah, I mean, that's the short, that's the short answer. That it's, uh, it's my own personal journey. And, and I'm very excited about it because of how it has brought much, much hope and rest in my own life. Hmm. Yeah. Thank you for, thank you for sharing that, brother, for being vulnerable like that. Um, you know, it's interesting. There's maybe a little bit of a theme happening here. So Conrad Evie, uh, we, he just recently did two talks on trauma, OCD and scrupulosity. I'd never heard of the scruple, that scrupulosity term. I couldn't even say it for the first while. And so I finally said it a couple of times and got it down. And but the idea of, yeah, of, um, basically it's a, a set of, uh, asceticism idea that you, that you talked about on healthy views of God, either lawlessness or asceticism. So asceticism could almost be scrupulosity possibly. Yeah. The two are maybe interchangeable almost. Um, so it's really, uh, yeah, it's uh, very thought-provoking and challenging. So thank you for sharing this morning. God bless you, brother. And, and of course, uh, you, you um, I shouldn't say of course, um, you probably don't know this, but my favorite quote is the E. Stanley Jones quote that you gave. Amen. I love that quote. I, I've been so blessed by that quote that we can know who God is by looking at Jesus. Hallelujah. Yes. Amen. Couple comments here on the, on the, um, chat. Patrick is asking if we can put a link to the YouTube channel. And I think Glenn, you did that, right? Yeah, there it is. It's also, that link is also on the strength to strength website. Um, I believe on, on the, the, um, blurb about this talk here this morning. So that, that will be there. And, um, another, Participants um, called Ilya here says God went to great lengths to prove his love, but some people still doubt. So, yeah, I guess that's one of our challenges as being as being representatives of God is convincing people that God is love. Yeah, thank you. Anyone else? The reason that the Jews missed the Messiah was the is the same reason that sometimes I struggle with faith. Faith can be if we don't have if we don't understand the heart of God, it can just be an action to of performance and we it's and and that's not faith. <laughs> Amen. Good morning. I have a question. Yep, go ahead. Yes, I'm on a phone, so you won't be able to see me. I do some prison ministry, and in the material we use, it covers the thought that our view of God is formed by our earthly father, 
Well, a lot of men in prison, their fathers were not good fathers. They were maybe addicts. Maybe they were absent fathers. They don't have really that role model of an earthly father. What would be some suggestions of how to encourage them in spite of the situation they find themselves in concerning their earthly father? Did you get that? Yes. Yeah, thank you for that question. It's a hard question, and I probably don't have an answer. But, um, you know... We need to we need to learn to find our security in Jesus. We need to learn to find our security in in God. At a very deep level, people are insecure. And and until we find until we find rest in 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 God, you know, it's going to be difficult to to um, relate rightly to, um, it'll be difficult to perform even the second commandment of loving other people until we learn to like love God without all our heart. I mean, they go together. I, I get that. So we need both. But how can how can we help people to have a sanctified view of God when they have had a bad experience as a child. One one thing that I think about is the story about Moses. So I was talking about the Israelites and how how they again and again lashed out at Moses. But one you know there was a time at uh, at this place called Meribah where Moses kind of became fed up with this as well. And God was very gracious with the complaining. God was very gracious with the bad attitudes. And he said to Moses, gather the congregation together. I'm going to uh, have you just speak to the rock. And out of it is going to flow this water that's going to feed all the congregation. And instead, instead of, you know, following God's way of very graciously and, and mercifully without any chiding or rebuke. Instead of following that way, what Moses did is he flew off the handle himself. And he said, must we bring water for you out of this rock? You know, listen here, you rebels. You, you need us to bring this water out. And he goes and he takes his rod and he strikes the rock twice. And, and God, and God came, and, and so God still graciously provided that water. However, he, um, God came to Moses and Aaron and said, because you did not sanctify me in the eyes of the people, therefore you will not be entering, taking them into the, into the promised land. You will not enter the promised land with them. And what that, what that, um, just impresses on my mind is is that we need to represent God, you know. And so other people, maybe maybe these 
you know, the, the inmates that you're working with, they had, had bad relationships, uh, broken, they come from broken situations, broken homes and so on. They don't have a father to look back on, an earthly father to, to recognize God's love through. That needs to be us. You know, we who, we who bear the name of God, we need to be the ones who represent God, represent the compassion and the, and the care and the love and the patience to these people until they can come to a place where they recognize the father as their own father. So I, I don't know. Um, it's a few thoughts that I have about that question. There no doubt other brothers will be able to contribute thoughts about that. It's, it's a difficult question, but thank you for, thank you for asking that. Thanks. Thanks for what you did share on that, that last part that you said that, you know, we, we can't take the place of the earthly father, but the challenge you gave to me was to really represent the heart of God as we're in there interacting with them. And, you know, with God's help, I want to do that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Amen. God bless you in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good thoughts. Someone else? Hey, hey, Patrick, you are um, muted there, brother. Um, there you go. Yeah. Uh, I brought up another screen. Darvin, I want to thank you. You were more confident in this video than I've seen before. And I know you're working through different issues. Amen. And I want to applaud you for being vulnerable and sharing what you did. And for the brother before, there's a lot of us that come from bad past that don't have a right relationship and a right view of God. And it really does prevent us from having good church relationships in the present. And I'm one of them. Uh, about a couple of weeks ago, I came on and some pride issues stepped out. And I spoke up and I slammed a bunch of people and I... You know, I have to repent for my behavior to them and to the community of strength to strength. Sometimes I get off and I don't know anything about a good relationship. I know how to break relationships. That's what I've been taught. Thank you for your presentation. Brother. Yeah. Thanks and God bless you, brother Patrick. Okay, well, anyone else yet? So there's a, a one question just came in the chat here from Mike Weaver. It says, we read stories in the Old Testament of God destroying those who disobeyed 
and sometimes perceived God and a harsh ruler with no mercy. Any suggestion on how to reconcile this with the gentle shepherd we perceive Jesus to be in the New Testament, especially as we read Bible stories and teach our children? Do you have, you have any comments on that, Darvin? Oh, I, I love the question. Honestly, I'm still working on that one. I, I hope. I hope at some point to address that question in one of my YouTube videos. I don't know that I have uh, an answer Im- immediately, but I but I will say that um, <clears throat> if you take a look at if you take a look at the promises that God gave to Israel when they left Egypt, you will notice, I, I believe that you will notice a promise that pretty much precludes war. He says that I'm going to drive out the people before you with hornets. And, and there's more, and there's more to it than that. I think, I kind of think that part of the answer to this question is that God never that that God never needs to employ war and he never and he did not need to in the old testament either but he was but that was like um he he worked that way with the children of Israel to um to account for the hardness of heart that they themselves had and so they were such a militant bunch always ready to lash out and 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 like start up a war god god like worked along with that to try to help them come to a place where they don't need war anymore but but i i would uh i would say that part of the answer to the question is that god never intended it in the in the first place and and so anyway, there's a lot that could be said about that. Uh, it's, uh, it's a work in process and maybe I'll share about that sometime in the future. Right. Very good. So I think we'll give a last call for any questions or comments here. So, so next week we have, next Saturday is a, actually a bonus talk and on kingdom opportunities to share how the greater community of Jesus followers can contribute. Um, I think, I think there was some, some effective communication in that way last, last time this was done, in, I believe in January. Um, and maybe, maybe we can have some, some more of that. Some people found some, some ways they could serve. I've heard stories of that. Maybe we can hear more about that next time. Um, so that is next, next Saturday, August 6th, a bonus talk. And there's also a bonus talk for the sisters. I mean, not a bonus, but a, the strength of strength sisters is, has a scheduled talk. And that is by Natasha Swayze, the God who sees. So, 
um, brothers, you can let, let the sisters in your lives, you know, women, in, women in your lives know about that. Remind them about that and look forward to seeing you again. Thank you for sharing, Darvin, and God bless you in your, um, yeah, in your journey and, and where that has brought you in, in, in seeing and understanding God and God bless all of us as we, as we grow in that. Would you lead us in a closing prayer yet, Darvin? Sure, let's pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Father, we pray that you might grant to us that we may have the strength to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you. And God bless you all. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend.